Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this, for those of you who are new to us, is a podcast about our deepest values, and particularly about how those shaping our public conversations think about their values and their principles, and how they use their voice or their platform. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice, from rappers to writers, archbishops to artists, politicians to playwrights, and try and listen as they get a chance to reflect on what has shaped them and what they've learned about navigating divides. I'm trying to create a space which is a bit less defined by adversarial debate or well-rehearsed self-promotion, where we maybe can all develop some more empathy by listening deeply to a really wide range of people who may come from different places, believe different things, behave in different ways, or vote in very different ways from ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear a lovely conversation I had with the multi-MOBO award-winning rapper, hip-hop artist, and author, Governor B, whose real name is Isaac Bourquet. He's presented TV and radio documentaries for the BBC, is a Sky Sports pundit, and his most recent book is Unspoken, Toxic Masculinity, and how I faced the man within the man. We spoke about how his childhood as a first-generation immigrant on a council estate has shaped him, the way he's had to navigate different tribes with his music and his creativity, and how he really needs space to process his emotions. It was an incredibly thought-provoking conversation that I had with Governor B, and I think the thing that stuck with me the most is this sense of the way circumstances frame all of us and particularly those involved with gun crime young people often on estates who don't really see any other options and the line there's a crabs in a bucket mentality about some of these places but it's not the crabs that are the problem it's the bucket will really stay with me i hope you enjoy listening Isaac, we're going to do the opposite of warming you up, opposite of small talk, opposite of like some light question that you've answered a million times. So health warning, I'm going to ask you what you hold sacred. What is your, what are some of your sacred values? And it's deliberately a slightly unusual concept to try and move us into a slightly different headspace. And you can really take it wherever you want. It's not necessarily a religious concept. And I try and ask people not to say like my family, but to think, is there principles or values you've tried to live by that you won't always have done so perfectly, but you know something's been transgressed when you maybe have moments where people are inviting you to give up on those or offering you money to give up on those? Does anything come to mind or you can just riff a little bit on your values and principles? <laughs> I guess the first thing that comes to mind is creating space. I'm an internal processor. And I find that, you know, when life is happening, if I don't guard space to process my thoughts, my feelings, my responsibilities, um, I kind of just keep going and keep going and keep going. And it's not always healthy for me. Um, I think that, you know, it shows itself physically when I'm struggling, um, when I'm running out of mental capacity just about a month ago actually uh had to call an ambulance because my body just kind of shut down and I was all right and they said it was like a stress induced something I can't remember what they said um but basically when I thought about the last couple of months I realized I hadn't carved out space to just chill out to think to process 
Um, so yeah, I guess my sacred value that comes to mind is is space. I'm going to go completely out of order of my questions and I'm going to loop back and ask about your childhood in a minute, but I want to ask how much music does that for you? Because I have had Watching Over Us, is that what it's called, on a loop this morning? Yeah. Which feels to me like you partly processing the last year and also helping people process the past year and that line about, I hope you're watching over us because, like, honestly, this has nearly broken us. It's just so beautiful yeah, is is that a space that you do it or do you need other forms as well? Yeah, I guess music is an outlet. It's, you know, it helps people, which I'm very grateful for. But I think first and foremost, this it's just a healthy way of me getting out my thoughts. I'm not the best verbal communicator. I've never really kept a diary. Um, my parents love me, but we've never had that relationship where I can just really, you know, open up with my deepest, darkest, most innermost, you know, thoughts and music has always been that outlet for me. Um, and so, yeah, first and foremost, it's therapeutic. And then I guess multifunctional in the sense that it, it can help people. Okay, we're going to come back to that and how you think about the way you use your voice in public. And what's for? What's art for? I'm going to get really deep. But first, I want to ask about your childhood. And you've spoken really openly about the legacy of your mum and dad on growing up in an estate in East London. Does it count as East London? Customers. Yeah, yes, East I'm, London. I'm yeah. from South London and therefore my geography of that area is uh, <laughs> patchy. Uh, but I, I'd love to hear some of that story. If you are happy to, the particular thing I'm interested in is the kind of ideas that were in the air and they might not have been communicated, but for some people that's really political, for some people that's really religious, for some people it's just like a posture, you know, the world is safe or the world is tough or whatever are these messages that we just pick up from our parents and our community. If you can flesh out some of those for me as well, I'd love that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, my parents, uh, Ghanaian, they came over to England in their early 20s um, just to carve out a new path for themselves. And I think, you know, coming to a new country that you don't know too much about, um, just looking for opportunities to further the legacy, um, move the family forward, um, comes with various things. I guess they were on a mission from when they um, got here, working really hard. Both of them had a, a couple of jobs at a time. And I guess the first thing that I witnessed was hard work was almost part of our, our DNA. My dad used to always say, your hands are made for working. Um, and they just worked and worked and worked and worked. And I think that's probably why you know I can have grace for them not being amazing in the communication aspect and talking about emotions because I guess they were so focused on trying to make rent that month and and that kind of stuff so I guess from a young age I realized that you know to really make a way in this world you'd have to work really hard they always used to say that you know because of where we're coming from and me being a first generation Brit and the world maybe looking at black people a little differently at times I would have to work five, ten times harder than some of my white friends. Um, so I always had that kind of chip on my shoulder that it's not enough to be just good, but I have to be great and, and work even harder. I guess growing up on a council estate in East London, um, I saw people become victims um, a lot of the times, you know, whether it was you know losing their house because they couldn't pay the rent or the mortgage and, and getting evicted, whether it was my peers um, getting involved in in youth violence and getting stabbed and, and shot and that kind of stuff. Um, 
that subconsciously told me that I had to be tough on the estate. I was never going to be, you know, the gangster or, or the bad guy because my parents tried so hard to protect me from that lifestyle. But I knew that I had to be strong and you know, me being the eldest child and what makes a man is someone that never cries and stiff up a lip and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And what, was there any faith around, what, did your parents have a religion? Yeah, so my parents were, were Christians. Um, in a lot of African countries, I feel like faith is a very big thing, kind of lead towards Christianity or Islam mainly. My parents were Christians and so we went to church um from a very young age, um, as young as I can remember. And parents always wore their Sunday best. My dad always wore like a suit to church. My mum like big Ghanaian fabrics and that kind of stuff and, and took it really seriously. Um, funny enough though, I don't feel like they explained to me what the gospel was or why we went to church. It was just part and parcel of what we did it wasn't until I got older 15 16 years old and my mum didn't force me to go anymore I kind of thought hmm uh, I actually want a reason to go now and I'm going to try and find out a bit more and if it's not for me then I just won't come back um but yeah church was just part of the DNA of the family and we and we did it every week so what did happen when you went and wrestled it out for yourself um well I actually never struggled to believe in God I feel like from a young age it was so silly. It's very simple, right? But basically, I used to look at both of my palms and be amazed that they were exactly the same size. And I just thought, oh, I think someone's created this. So for me, it was never like a wrestle in terms of how we all got here and whether I believed that someone created it and that kind of stuff. I just didn't really understand the church aspect. And hmm. obviously, church is a lot of people, run. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just realized quickly that church was run by a lot of imperfect people. Um, and that's probably what I grappled with the most. Um, and I didn't understand why church always pretended to have the answers to all of life's deepest questions when really I feel like we're all just winging it and, and trying to work it out. Um, but my youth leader was really down to earth and was kind of the first to admit, well, I don't know, but let's work it out together. Let's read the Bible together. And he kind of put his arm around me and, yeah, just modelled relatable mentorship and that probably you know helped me kind of stay plugged in and stuff but in terms of you know belief in god i just had that from a young age i just look at nature and think yeah i don't i don't believe this is an accident but i think someone created it and what about music how where what are your earliest memories around that yeah so my mum and dad used to always play um gospel music in the house um people like kirk franklin Mary Mary, the Winans, and they'd also play a lot of old school stuff, um, a lot of 80s disco, they'd call it. So like the Jackson 5, Luther Vandross, Whitney Houston. Music was always, you know, a part of my family's life. We were the annoying family on, in the estate that always played music like crazy loud and always had family round and, and good times at Christmas. I remember my wife was a bit shocked the first time we had Christmas around my house because it's just music um, on all the time. It was just like a big party. Um, and as I got older, I started to develop my own taste. And on the estate, a lot of us rapped. Um, and there was a rapper from around the corner, free actually, from about 15, 20 minutes away. A guy called Wiley, Dizzy Rascal and Kano. And they were on MTV. And I think for us on the estate, we were like, oh, these guys are like 15, 20 minutes away. And they're rapping and now they're famous and they're on TV. We can do that. 
and that's why I started rapping basically. Um, but I started by rap battling, and that's basically just taking the mickey out of other people's mums and stuff. And I was very, very good at it, being disrespectful, and so built a little bit of a name for myself. But my youth leader at church found one of my songs where I was swearing, and he said, "Right, this is not you. You're just pretending to be someone you're not. You're rapping about guns, girls, drugs. You." don't have a gun, you don't do drugs, you don't get any girls, why don't you <laughs> rap about something a bit Ow. more reflective of of who you are and, you know, what your life is like. And, and that's when I started to talk about things that were a bit more uplifting and positive. And at the same time, one of my friends was murdered on the estate and I kind of just felt a bit awkward about glamorising violence through lyrics. And so that really inspired me to, you know talk about different subject matters and it just kind of went from there I never really wanted to do it as a job or for it to be my career but yeah I just kind of fell into it how, how did it end up being your career because it's not just a little sideline you've you've got some significant clout now in the industry <laughs> yeah so it's my youth leader again I got a shout him out his name's Hafiz but he challenged me to record an album for my youth group and at the time there were 70 people or thereabouts of my youth group and I did like a little album launch on a Friday night which is when we usually had youth club and people caught wind of it in the area and about 900 people turned up that day to the album launch and I guess I walked out and was just like what is going on and yeah that was the first time I realized that maybe God has something for me in this area and I'll just keep going and, and see how it goes so yeah it was completely unexpected but that was probably the start of me thinking I could do this as a bit of a career did am I right in thinking it was that album that won a MOBO award yeah it was it was called The Narrow Road it's a very very bad album if you listen to it now it's about 10 11 years old and my voice had hardly broken but yeah it played its part in what you see today Joy. What a joy. I mean, I just feel like uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of youth workers that listen to this podcast, which will just be feeling so inspired about the impact they can have on young people, um, which is a great thing to do. So I want to talk to you about being a Christian artist because I feel like that I'm very interested in how culture works and what has high cultural capital and high social status and what doesn't and how... Artists in particular are these voices in culture that help narrate the world to us, right? They tell us what to value, what not to value. Real, really powerful role in putting, helping people express feelings that they wouldn't necessarily be able to express, like lament or anger or joy or whatever it is. Um, but I feel like there's a sort of thread in Christian culture. I don't know if other faiths have this where it can kind of like hive off into slightly sort of parallel cultural production factory. And there's some stuff that's really helpful for people devotionally, but can sometimes seem like it is restricted in the range of human emotions and human questions that are allowed. And there's like a path of Christian, you know, there's a particular pathway, particularly in the States, of people starting off in gospel or in worship music, and then having a bit of a struggle and not knowing where they sit and sometimes throwing out the whole thing and ending up feeling like the only way to progress is as a mainstream artist. And there's like grief as we watch some of those journeys. How, how have you navigated these different worlds, these different tribes, these different languages to express what you're trying to do to as wide a range of people as possible? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, as much as I love my youth leader, I think culture around church um, and Christians that made music at the time was, you know, we fit neatly into these boxes. So you're a Christian and you make music, therefore you are a gospel artist or you are a Christian artist or you are a Christian rapper. That means that you don't collaborate with people in the mainstream or people that aren't Christians. It means that you have to say Jesus in every song. It means that you can't really vary your subject matters. And we see the world in a very linear way. And you can only talk about Jesus and that's it. And for me, I kind of took that on because it was the culture of what we did back then. But I felt like I was fighting against art. There was you know, music that I wanted to write and things that were coming naturally that just didn't speak into, just didn't fit neatly into that box. Um, But I guess as I got a bit older, gained a bit more experience, um, I got a little bit braver and comfortable with, you know, not every song having to have uh, a happy ending and the fact that my faith is foundational to who I am and I don't need to prove that to anyone by saying, you know, the name Jesus in every song. Um, I saw how people who weren't Christians were starting to relate to my music and it would open up conversations and and different questions. And I also realized that, you know, the way that church had conditioned me to, to make music meant that I only served Christians Um, And I felt like a lot of what, you know, I've been gifted with is to speak to people outside of the four walls of the church. Um, And I just realized that church is like anything else. It's, 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 you know, run by human beings who have their opinions and were affected by the culture. And culture is essentially the way we do things around here. And I just, I kind of wanted to think outside the box a little bit. And I guess in general, I've just, I just view life a lot differently now even with conversations around purpose and what I'm meant to be doing and that kind of stuff, I don't see it as we're here to just do one thing. I feel that life is a bit more fluid and sometimes I'm doing some stuff within the church. Sometimes I'm on a mainstream tour. Sometimes I'm hosting something for a church. Sometimes I'm on Sky Sports. It just doesn't have to be this linear thing. It it can be a lot more fluid and I've just learned to be comfortable with not really fitting in anywhere. I love that. I want to cheerlead you being a bridge person who moves between tribes. I think there's huge value and goodness in that, but it does take a certain amount of like inner self-confidence to not be easily boxable in a tribe. And that thing, you know, it can feel lonely sometimes, I think, of just sort of feeling like you're disappointing everyone a little bit because everyone wants to stick their flag in you. Yeah. You're one of ours, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that bridge word you used is, is a perfect way to describe it. Because, you know, I'm coming from working class council estate. My friends are on the street, some in prison, some selling drugs, some have been stabbed, some have been shot. Some will never step foot inside the church. And I'm very comfortable around hanging out with those guys. But I'm also super comfortable in a church. And my dream is to, you know, bring those two worlds together. It shouldn't be one or the other and also mainstream culture has changed as well so when I became a Christian there was this DVD right called the truth behind hip-hop and it was talking about how all hip-hop music 
is evil, even Christians that make hip hop. And everyone should go home, get their Jay-Z CDs and Nas CDs and burn them. And there was this like big uh, group of people just burning CDs and stuff like that. Um, and also on the mainstream side, they would never ever play like a Christian song on the radio because they'd feel like it was ostracizing. You had like Jesus Walks by Kanye West, but Kanye West was already an established mainstream artist. And I think you had Shackles by Mary Mary, which was like a huge hit. But other than that, nothing really. But now because the world's in such a, a dire place, it's like any bit of hope we can get people are lapping it up so you know Kendrick Lamar talks about faith and Stormzy had blinded by your grace and and so everything's a bit more fluid now and I think that you know it's a great opportunity to build relationships and be even more of a bridge than we were able to be before yeah and in the sort of wider mainstream industry one of the things I feel one of the ways I feel like the sort of slightly parallel Christian culture and the more mainstream expressions can clash is there's a certain instinct, I think, in, in Christians in general, which I think is a strength and a good, but can come off as basically a bit too sincere, a bit too earnest, you know, a bit too, um, maybe a bit too hopeful. And I wondered if you'd, if you're in conversations where people are like, all right, yeah, but just tone down the, because you're such an optimistic and hopeful person who manages yeah. to weave lament and difficulty in how much has, yeah. has it ever felt like if I was just actually a bit bleaker I'd probably get listened to by more people I don't think that's yeah. actually how it's gone but has that question been a, a had been put to you yeah funnily enough it, it that is how it's gone I think when my dad passed away 2017 the first album I released after it's called hands are made for working and it was a bit bleaker not every song had a happy ending um, it was full of lament and it's when I learned to be comfortable with leaving the tissues out for a bit longer because before that after like being a Christian it's like everything's got to be all right even if someone passes away like don't worry like he's in heaven just move on and I wasn't in that space and so I wanted to be you know authentic and so I started to be a bit more vulnerable and I think people related to it a lot more it wasn't a conscious decision that you know if I'm a bit bleaker in my lyrics maybe I'll be a bit more accepted in the mainstream or whatever. But I think, you know, we shouldn't be shy to be vulnerable. Um, and I think that people relate to vulnerability a lot. And whatever stage of life I'm at, whether I'm happy, optimistic, I'm going to share that. Um, and I just try not to overthink it, I think. But yeah, vulnerability definitely softens hearts, I'd say. Um, but it's never going to be me to just be like completely depressing every song and every album. You have a great lyric of, if we want rhythm, I guess we need blues, which has just really stuck with me. Um, yeah, 100%. So tell me, I want to talk a little bit more about that because you've been writing about toxic masculinity and I was listening to a great interview you did with Russell Kane and a couple of other people about um, being a man now. And it feels like I, a couple of weeks ago, I was, in a, I was feeling pretty depressed about the the place we've got to in conversations about gender in the UK it was straight after Sarah Everard. And everywhere I looked, it was like, men need to do this, not all men this, women saying this, why can't you hear us? Like this real sense of gap, I guess, really, between the yeah. genders and how they experience the world. Where, what are you thinking at the moment? In fact, that's a, that's a terrible way of framing that question. Um, tell me how you think that conversation about manhood and womanhood is going at the moment, and then maybe we'll drill down a little bit more into 
your dad and the book that you wrote about that process of grief? Yeah, um, I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, with the pandemic, it's something that seems to have stopped the whole world. And when the world has stopped, there is an opportunity for conversation um, and for us to push conversations forward. Um, So that's the first thing I'd say, you know, I truly believe that if everything was normal and people were going about their daily lives, the response to George Floyd, Sarah Everard, I don't feel like it would have been as monumental as it is now because we have time to process, we have time to talk. Second thing I'd say is I think it's strange when these conversations come up and the first response, you know, from whatever side you're on is one of defense and not compassion. For me, that's that's always going to be strange because I'm like, something terrible has happened that's affected someone's family and it highlights a deeper issue in society. And hopefully we all want to live in a society that is healthier, in an environment that encourages people to thrive why can we not learn to listen? Why can we not learn to behave in a compassionate way, to be led by compassion and and empathy? Why do we always have to be on the defense? And don't want that to sound airy-fairy because sometimes there are things that are said and I get defensive, but I have to remind myself that there are people that view the world differently and the goal is to try and find common ground so we can move forward. So, you know, my overriding thought is we have to try to... And this is a challenge for myself. Like I have to try and get to a place where I'm led by compassion and empathy rather than defense. Um, and there is a gap, but sometimes I think we have to break you know, situations down. If we look at the overriding conversation on a big scale, it's so overwhelming. But then I'm like, okay, my friendship group, am I having these conversations in my friendship groups? And because we're led by the love that we have for each other, they tend to be healthier conversations and it tends to be less overwhelming and I can't change the world. I can't make everyone's life better, but we can impact our friendship groups and hopefully it kind of goes from there. So, Yeah, thank you. Gosh, there's such wisdom in there. Um, (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about growing up on the estate and you've mentioned a little bit about having friends, real close friends murdered and... What, what was the model of manhood that you were sort of implicitly presented with growing up? And what was, tell me about the moment in your life that kind of made you not want to adopt that anymore. Yeah. Um, see, I lost a few friends on the estate and, you know, there was a lot of love on my estate, a lot of first generation Brits, a lot of working class English people, loads of different nationalities and we were all different. But the fact that we were different was the thing that kind of brought us together and united us. But I guess one thing, you know, in hindsight that I realised, take my friend, it was murdered, for example. On a day, um, every single one of us was upset, shocked. Um, But we didn't show that side to each other. It was kind of glamorised. We looked at it from a sensational standpoint. It was like, oh, that's so sad. But it was like, right, now we've got to suck it up and get on with it. But now we talk about it and it's like, when we go back to that day when we all went back to our houses, every one of us struggled to sleep. Every one of us was upset. Some of us cried, but we didn't show that to each other. Um, We just kind of internalized it, you know? And what happens is you suck it up, you internalize it. And so in your mind, you think, right, I've got over it. But 10 years later, you're like, actually, I'm not over that. And I need to try and deal with it. And it's such a bigger 
a bigger issue and it's such a bigger problem. Now, you know, for me, it was when my dad passed away in 2017. I had lost a few people close to me, but um, they were a bit distant, you know. My friend, I was like really, really young. My grandma lived in Ghana, so there was an element of distance there. But with my dad, I saw him every day and, you know, it was so rapid and unexpected that it really affected me. Now, I'm the oldest child, so I did all the admin after we passed away um, and tried to make sure my mum was okay and that kind of stuff. And I didn't really, you know, process my grief. And about three months later, I was on a tour in America um, with Matt Redman and we was on our last date and I went to Newport Beach and I woke up feeling very, very heavy um, and like I was at capacity. And on the beach, I kind of just broke down. Um, but the strange thing was after I had cried you know, floods of tears, I felt this freedom that I hadn't felt in a long time. And I guess, I guess that's when I thought, man, the way I've been doing this, I feel is wrong because how come I've done the most you know, unmanly thing society would call and cried? How come after that I feel really free? Um, and that was the start of the process of just, you know, reshaping my masculinity, trying to externalize some of the thoughts. Cause I don't think I was just crying for my dad. I think I was crying for every single traumatic experience I had faced in life and not dealt with, you know, that was, that was all of it just coming out. And so that started the process of me practicing vulnerability, which I didn't know how to do practicing, being honest with the people around me that love me starting counseling and that kind of stuff and I'm still on the journey it's really tough because you know I was 27 when my dad passed away and that's 27 years of looking at masculinity one way and being conditioned so I've got about 26 years to go to yeah. <laughs> reshape it you know so I spend a lot of time deliberately trying to listen across tribes and to listen to the way different people react to different phrases and the phrase toxic masculinity I've had a lot of feminists on the on the podcast, call myself a feminist, I have lots of friends with feminists, and they use this phrase very co commonly. But I also have friends and I'm listening to tribes who are, you know, decent and precious to me, who are a bit allergic to that phrase. And I think it's often because what they hear when you say to toxic mas masculinity is that masculinity is toxic, rather than mm. that there's a particular way of it being expressed that is causing issues yeah. have you had people like kick back and say like you're trying to feminize christianity or you're trying to feminize men or like you, you know you're you're giving up on man's unique contribution in the world or whatever it is what are, what are some of the things some of the reactions that you've had from men and i guess from men that you respect yeah man i've had loads of those conversations uh, my friends are probably split down the middle of people that are like oh it's helpful to talk about and that's a helpful thing to to call it another friend saying, ah, oh, you wouldn't last in days of World War II and you need to toughen up and um, not all men are bad and that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, both sides have valid points and we have loads of good conversations. But I always say, you know, I understand why you think the term might not be helpful. And it's this umbrella term that is used by various people talking about various different things. But hear my heart. What I mean when I say it, first of all, the reason why it's in the title is because it's just the thing that encompasses what I'm talking about the most. And I think, you know... People um, need a shorthand, right? And when a conversation yeah. is happening, it helps your voice become part exactly. of the conversation if they get, have the same language. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what I mean when I say that is 
masculinity isn't toxic. You know, strength in of itself is a great thing. Dominance can be a great thing. Not crying can be a great thing. But if your mind and your body is telling you to be vulnerable, if your mind is telling you to share your weaknesses with the people around you, if your mind is telling you that you need space to do those things, but you don't listen to your mind and body because you're trying to live up to these societal ideals, that's when it becomes harmful. That's when it becomes toxic. If you're a strong person, strong man, great. But if that exerts itself in you, you know, using your strength to control a woman, that's toxic, that's harmful. And so that's what I mean by I'm not saying, you know, masculinity is toxic. And I think once I explain it, people get it. But yeah, sometimes terms will will divide people and that's just but I like it. I like having conversations and I think it's it's great when you can listen to people from both sides. And I'd love to hear what you think about, you know, if you look at young men growing up in from where you grew up or generally in society. What do you think they need in order to flourish, to be able to thrive in the world, to feel like they can be fully themselves? Um, yeah. We, we're often, I, th- I always feel torn because I, I, I think we do need to talk a huge amount about gender justice and actually historically women have like been more squished by this unjust system, but it's also squished yeah. men and boys. So what do you think they need? Uh, the million dollar question. Um I think it's environment has, you know, a lot to to do with it. Um I think we could take race and, and class out of it to a certain extent because I've spoken to, you know, young black boys that are struggling, um, and their root causes are different to, you know, when I go to a private school and I speak to to those kids that are really struggling. But you know, what I'd say is, you know, from my background Human beings, um, you know, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, they're not, they're not like bad kids. Do you know what I'm saying? They're just misguided children. We learn the primary behaviors from, you know, primary people in our lives. And so I think it's so easy to, to write young people off sometimes and say, oh, that person's done this. They're just a, a criminal. But I think half the time they're misguided children. And I always talk about this crabs in a bucket mentality of, you know, Crabs trying to get out of the bucket, another one of the crabs pulls it down, and that's what it is in in the environment that I grew up in. But it's the goal of it. The problem is not the crabs. The problem is the bucket. If there's no bucket, um, then they don't try and pull each other down. And so I think if we can provide an environment that causes young people to thrive, and that means you know government legislation that is um, geared towards helping young people thrive, it, that that means a great education system that means parents taking responsibility that means you know neighbors looking out for the young people that means your shopkeeper your bus driver everyone chipping in on the whole kind of like it takes a village to raise a child vibe then i think young people make better decisions and they have more of a chance to thrive but the hard thing is getting all those cogs to turn at the same time they will turn at different times and so sometimes it's super hard but you know, when I was growing up, a youth club was a massive part of my journey. I think since 2013, well, in 2013, youth budget was 1.4 billion. And now it stands at about 400,000, you know, about 3,000 youth leaders have lost their jobs. And yeah, and then people act surprised when young people are fighting each other in summer holidays and evenings because they've got nowhere to go, you know, and it's hanging around the streets getting up to, to no good. But I would say people are quick to pass the buck 
I'd say the goal is to get the cogs to turn at the same time and, you know, education, government, people in the community, creating a, a great environment for people to thrive, you know. Um, and people underestimate as well. Um, class does come into it because, you know, for example, like we talk about mental health. I've been doing like a lot of press around the book and it's just like, yeah, just go counselling, you know. But, you know, if you're a working class community, you're waiting like four or five months to get a counselling session on your local authority. And if you want to go private, you haven't got the money to be able to to do that. So, you know, poorer people do have to work harder um, to protect their, their mental and emotional health. And that's something that needs to be looked at. Um, but I say environment, an environment that encourages young people to thrive. I mean, that thing about the problem is not the crabs, it's the bucket. It's really going to stay with me because uh, it's easy to blame yeah. the crabs. So I saw an interview with you on Sky News a while back about knife crime and you said something really... So what's interesting to me is you then sampled some of that question in a song, so it obviously stayed with you. Uh, but you said something about helping young people understand their gift and purpose in the world. Something in like social policy, we'd, we'd say creating agency like not just receiving, but knowing that you've got something to give. Can you unpack that yeah. a bit for me? And do you think it was a part of you finding your place in the world? Yeah, sure, man. So I I never, ever thought, didn't even fathom that I could be here for a reason. I just kind of woke up, let the days go by. Obviously, I watched like Prince of Bel-Air on the TV, saw the mansion that Will, Uncle Phil had and that. But I never thought, you know, I could ever go to America. I could even leave the estate. It was just, this is my life. This is where we are. Let's just see what happens. And then my primary school head teacher, Miss Arnenson, I got chucked out on my lesson one day. And she said, look, if you only knew how good you were at English and writing stories, you wouldn't be messing about. I think you could do amazing things. And, you know, even though my parents loved me and I had supportive family and stuff, Miss Arnison was actually the first person that told me I was good at something and that I could offer something to the world. Up until that point, I thought I was just, you know, a barcode or a name on a register. And so after that conversation, I kind of walked out of her office, six foot tall, woke up every day and I was like, I'm good at English. I'm going to write lyrics. I'm going to write stories. I've got something to give to the world. And that completely changed the trajectory of my life because I knew that I'm not just here to receive handouts, but I actually have something of value that can help people. And I think so many young people, regardless of where you come from, can live without purpose. You can be, you know, the poorest kid on the estate and feel like you have no purpose. You could be the richest kid in like a really wealthy area and just think that, you know, your parents got money, great, but you have nothing to give to the world. And I think when you know that you have something to give and a purpose in life, you just approach life differently. And purpose isn't always, you know, one thing. It's not always okay, you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a rapper or whatever. Sometimes it's just you carry something that can help the world. Sometimes it's when you walk past a homeless person, just something happens to your heart. Maybe that's on your heart because you're here to do something about homelessness. Maybe, I don't know, you think about cancer and you're like, oh, I hate the fact that cancer takes so many lives. Maybe that's like, because not everyone feels like that. Some people just walk past a homeless person and you know they don't feel anything, but... There's specific things that are on your heart for a reason. And I think that's something to do with why you're here on this earth. There's specific giftings that we have. And I think that they're not just for us to, you know, they can be therapeutic and cathartic for us, but I think there's so much to give. And when you, like I've done mentoring, I've got relationships with, you know, young people where I 
kind of help them out with purpose and thinking about the future and stuff. And that moment where the light bulb goes off and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm good at this. Like, it's amazing because, yeah, it just makes all the difference. So thank you, Miss Arnensen, if you listen to this. Um, you did that for me and hopefully we can do that for as many young people as possible. Yeah, let's honour her and all of those like her. I think that, so my a colleague of mine wrote a long piece on Jordan Peterson recently. And so that's, you know, in terms of like the gender discussion and how men and women get on Jordan Peterson get, comes up a lot. But I think mm. one of the th- one of the reasons he does really connect with young men in particular is that sense of agency and purpose and dignity. Like you have something you can offer, like stand up straight, go mm. do some good. Um, yeah. Which is why I have try and keep patience for him despite some of his more uh, challenging things that I wouldn't agree with. But, that's, you know, this is what we're talking about, right? It's really important to listen across these divides mm. and to not just write someone off someone off because they have one thing or one, one part of their identity or one opinion that we don't agree with. Um, yeah. What is your, and you've said a lot, so you, you, may, you may want to just repeat yourself, but is there one thing that has helped you be someone who can cross divides, who can build empathy, who can be trying to do more good than harm with your public voice and the platform that you have? I'm such an imperfect person and, you know, the way my life started and, and seeing my, my family work so hard and, you know, not really have a lot, but are still being very happy didn't realize they didn't have a lot till I got older um just makes me have a lot of empathy for people and you know seeing friends that have good hearts end up in bad situations sometimes through thoughts of their own sometimes not you know prison murder that kind of stuff I just realize how there's so many factors in life and so many things can influence where we go and I just think every action is a reaction and it makes me have a lot of grace for people and empathy for people because I know I'm imperfect and I know that, you know, life could have been very different for me. And so then I think when you speak to people that have been through, you know, tough times, like in my experience, they just seem to be a bit more empathetic. And that's why I don't mind people that disagree with me. That's why I don't mind, you know, polarizing opinions because I think I'm just, I just don't, it's not hard for me to try and see good in people. And I think that's maybe why I can meander through different circles. And But most people, most people are the way they are because of something that's happened in their life. And so I just try and try and bear that in mind. Isaac, Governor B, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. <laughs> Cheers for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember... Sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.